You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. We're deep in the NBA playoffs and heading toward this year's finals. Oakland's Oracle Arena may be basketball's most exciting address right now, and it certainly is among the most expensive. The Bay Area sports guy, Steve Berman, takes us inside the arena and explains why it gets so loud in there. Which NBA arenas offer the best fan experience right now? Paul Swanee of Stadium Journey helps us separate the good arenas from the really good ones. At baseball stadiums throughout America, we've heard the musical score of our national pastime played each game. Whether it's the great Bobby Mitchell of the Dodgers, Shea Torrent of the White Sox, or the incredibly talented Nancy Faust, they've helped us enjoy the game and the music. Nancy will be our guest. And Stadiums USA's Mark Medoran has the late-breaking story of significant delays in the construction of Kronke World. But first, more on Kronke World and the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, the completion date on the future home of the Rams and Chargers in Los Angeles has been pushed back one year. The reason? Record-setting rain in Southern California that has delayed construction on the project. Officials now say the venue will open in the summer of 2020. Ground was broken on the former Hollywood Park racetrack site in Inglewood in November. The delay means the Rams will play in the Coliseum for an extra season, while the Chargers will play at Carson's StubHub Center an extra year as well. A group of investors led by former soccer star David Beckham unveiled plans this week for an open-air 25,000-seat soccer stadium in Miami. The plan is a retooled version of previous blueprints as Beckham seeks to bring a MLS franchise to the Overtown neighborhood of Miami. The city of Baltimore held its annual tax sale this week. That's an opportunity for bidders to purchase unpaid taxes and water bills from property owners in exchange for the right to foreclose on property if those bills remain unpaid. Two buildings nobody expected to join the sale list this year, Camden Yards and M&T Bank Stadium. It appears the home of the Orioles and Ravens appeared on the tax sale list due to clerical errors. The dream of someone becoming the new owner of those venues was very brief. And bobblehead giveaways at the ballpark remains very popular. Just ask Washington National fans. The team offered up Trey Turner bobblehead dolls between a split doubleheader this week at their home park against the Phillies. Fans were stuck in line as far as the eye could see before the start of the second game of the twin bill. Fans were disenchanted with missing the first pitch of the game as they awaited their free toy. Bill, that is the very latest. (laughs) Thanks, Jeff. 
Have any educated guesses about the playoffs? Well, you wouldn't be far off if you can imagine a uh, an NBA Finals that could include the Golden State Warriors. And if so, you'll be seeing plenty of the Oracle Arena, which just happens to be the oldest venue in the NBA, if you could believe that. That is a mind-boggler to me. It's older than Madison Square Garden number 2. We're going to check with a guy who's been in there many times times he's seen the before and after actually we're talking about a renovated building and a previous building i've seen the old one not the new one steve Berman now joins us he is the bay area sports guy and steve let's dig into this place they say now that this is one of the toughest home courts in the nba is that your assessment yeah there's been some I guess uh, questions with the team getting so good and the tickets getting so much more expensive that maybe it's not quite the same crowd as it was before. But when, and also the Warriors have been so good that it kind of takes more for the crowd to get really excited because they've seen so many great moments in the last three years, but still when the crowd gets hyped, it is as loud as you can imagine. And a lot of it is actually architecture. It's a concrete structure and so when it gets loud, the sound just echoes everywhere, and you can really feel it not only just in your eardrums, but in your chest. In my mind, I have this image of this particular arena, and it goes back to about 1990, and I remember it was dark. I don't know how in the world they got an extra 4,000 seats in there. It seated about 15.6, as I recall, and now it's 19-something. That's a pretty good deal. I don't know how they did it. Uh, Steve, compare the old arena that I remember from the one which people see today. Yeah, it's it's actually I know that, you know, obviously they're going to be moving to San Francisco soon and mm-hmm. and every professional team in every sport seems to want a new facility every 10 years or so, it seems like. But but it, really what they've done with the arena in terms of the renovation, which I believe occurred in 95, it's nice. You know, there, there's a lot of seats in there. I remember I remember as a kid going in there and it definitely you're right. It was it was dark. It was uh, there were where people were. uh partaking in in different activities maybe in the upper upper deck (laughs) it was known for and and yeah now if you if you're inside the arena and you see the way that the seating is structured and and the luxury suites i mean it's not brand new by any means it definitely doesn't seem as big as other new arenas like i've been in staples i've been at the queue and in cleveland Mm -hmm. and oracle still seems more intimate than that but it definitely seems like nice enough for an nba team to play in but you know, nowadays, uh, they always want something new. Let's talk about the Bay Area as a hotbed of basketball, which it has become. And, you know, that's quite a contrast from a lot of years. It used to be that uh, San Francisco, Oakland was really just another stop. That was one of the stops you hit on the West Coast, and uh, it wasn't the most meaningful one. Those days are long gone now, and uh, you remember those days a little bit. How in the world did this all change? Well, the Warriors, I mean, it was just one of those deals where it was a sleeping giant that with poor ownership, I mean, the Chris Cohan tenure was, it was pathetic. It was embarrassing. It it was really as bad as you can, as you can think of. I mean, just imagine an owner with his son standing at midcourt when they get the all-star game and, and he's there in front of the crowd. He was a really reclusive guy. And the crowd booed him mercilessly. I mean, that's mm. the way that the uh, Oracle fans were. And when Joe Lacob took over, he kind of sort of felt like, you know, just with his brash persona and, and his commitment to making the playoffs soon, that the the fans would just say, all right, we love you, Joe. And 
that wasn't really the case. I mean, it was a famous situation where he was pretty much booed off the floor when Chris Mullen's number was retired. It was right after the Montellus trade. But since then, I mean, the Warriors have put together a really smart and multi-structured front office. It's very collaborative. I mean, Jerry West was a, a big hire, and he's there sort of to bounce ideas off of. They don't have just one guy making the decision. It's not just, say, like Mark Cuban making the decision or, or one GM. It's, it's a lot of guys all working together. And obviously, you have Steph Curry and some pretty great draft picks besides Steph, Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. They were able to manufacture a team that was excellent, but still not overly expensive. So they were able to add Durant. So then you look at you know, not only a team that uh, was on the come up and on the rise and had some a few good years, mm-hmm. but a team that set up to be a p- potential dynasty. What about the new arena? Can you see any signs at the Mission Bay site here that something is going on, or are we still a ways away from that? Well, they broke ground and had their big ceremony, and it was it was quite a a lot of pomp and circumstance to to put it mildly. I mean, they had uh, you know acrobats and you know all kinds of stuff going on and tractors going in in synchronicity. It was it was pretty funny. <laughs> so they they've broken ground, and and when that happens. Things happen pretty quickly. So you know that there's stuff going on right now at that site. I mean, I, I go back to Levi's, too. I mean, Levi's was a situation where, you know, people thought maybe they would, it would open in 2015, and they actually accelerated the building and got it open in 2014. I wouldn't be surprised if you see some of that in, San Fr- in the San Francisco arena. The only difference being in Santa Clara, once the money was set up, then it was all systems go. In San Francisco, it, the politics situation here is such that there's always going to be someone who's upset. And, and the Warriors have had to fight a uh, Mission Bay organization that has tried to keep the arena from being built near UCSF Medical Center. Mm-hmm. And there could be some environmental stuff that goes on that slows things down. But I think right now you're probably looking at a 2019 opening. Steve, thanks for the visit. We wish you well and uh, have a lot of fun there. All right. Thanks, Bill. Anytime. A pleasure. Steve Berman, the Bay Area sports guy, and we've had him on a number of times. A straight shooter who really fills us in, gives us a good overview of what is going on here at NBA playoff time. Now, coming up, we're going to continue to discuss NBA arenas. They're front and center right now at this time of the year. Paul Swanee of Stadium Journey checks in, and that's next on SB Nation Radio. The NBA says that over 99% of its fans do not visit NBA arenas. And brother, if they don't, they are missing something because NBA arenas are fantastic houses for the display of athletic achievement in professional basketball. We're going to talk about that with Paul Swanee, the founder of a wonderful site called Stadium Journey, and each year he evaluates stadiums in various sports. We're going to dig into pro basketball with him. Uh, Paul, how do you go about ranking these stadiums? What are you looking for? Well, first, thanks, Bill, for having me on. Uh, It's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, We have writers that write for our site all over the country, and we use a common scoring scale for for rating stadium experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, We look at a variety of different factors. We look at the food and beverage that's served in the arena. 
We look at the overall atmosphere, uh, the neighborhood where the arena is located, um, the fans, uh, the way they conduct themselves, how into the game they are, that sort of thing. Uh, category for access, which includes things like parking and traffic and restrooms in the facility. Overall return on investment, is it worth the cost that you pay to go to see a game there? And finally, one extra category for just anything sort of special or unique about a stadium. Paul, the NBA has really gone through another generation of stadiums pretty much. There are very few of the older ones left now. So most of these are very modern stadiums. They have a lot of things in common. As they improve, as they get more and more modern, is it more difficult to split them in terms of being able to say which ones are the best? Yeah, I think so, especially in the NBA where, you know, it's not like baseball where the the playing fields differ and, and provide some uniqueness. You know, I think a lot of the pressure for an NBA team is is on their staff to provide that unique experience, to provide some extras um, to really make their experience stand out above others. Let's go right to the top. Lasers broadcaster Brian Wheeler is going to be very happy with this. The Moda Center, and uh, that is the home of the Portland Trailblazers, and this year they rank number one. Why did they do so well? Well, I think the passion of the fans uh, really comes through in Portland. I mean, they they scored well in every category, of course, to be ranked number one. But I think the fact that they're one of only two major pro sports teams, along with the uh, Timbers of Major League Soccer, I think really helps uh, get the community involved and supportive of their team. So I think, you know, it's been pretty consistent that Moda Center uh, or Rose Garden Arena before that has been sort of top five or so for us. And this year it was a close call. And, And in fact, it came down to a tiebreaker. Uh, which we rely on the ratings of our users to to break the tie. So they they came mm-hmm. up on top partially because of our rating, but also because of uh, our user ratings as well. The building that you point out as being second in your poll, TD Garden, the home of the Boston Celtics, when it went online, a lot of people did not like it simply because of the building it was replacing. They love the old Boston Garden. That sits second on your poll. Tell us about that. Well, I think that's a good point. I think anytime you replace a classic, it's hard for people to immediately accept it. You know, the other thing for the Celtics is is they were so bad for a number of seasons when they first moved in. And then they, you know, they had the success with the big three and then they were down again. I think having a, a, a winning team helps to promote a good atmosphere. You'll find a lot of the teams that were in the playoffs this year are in our first, you know, 15 or 20 uh, in the rankings here. You know, I think it's the combination of kind of letting go of the past, getting used to the new environment, having a good team. And certainly Celtics fans are among the best in the league. Very interesting story on the Quicken Loans Arena, which ranks fourth. That is the home of the Cleveland Cavaliers, the current NBA champions. When this building was built originally, it was kind of a bare-bones building. That's what the sense was around the league in the NBA. Did the work that they've done on it factor in the rating you gave it? Definitely, and I, I think also outside of the building, its location in downtown Cleveland and sort of the the rise of Cleveland uh, in recent years, you know, there's all those great dining locations right down by the arena, and that helps add to the overall experience. I also find that the staff for the Cleveland Cavaliers are some of the best in the league that I've encountered. Um, the food and beverage management 
uh, in Cleveland is outstanding. When you look at a team that's really doing well and putting on a good experience, you'll find staff that are greeting fans consistently. You'll find staff that are smiling consistency. And it, it seems like a small thing, but it really can make a big difference. And, and that's definitely happening in Cleveland. But like you said, the return of LeBron and, and their first championship last year was was a big part of the experience as well. Uh, the American Airlines Center ranks third. That replaced the old Reunion Arena in Dallas, which was functional but not exceptional. This building is different, is it not, Paul? Yeah, it is. Uh, again, it's it's begun on the outside. They've done something that a few other arenas have done, and that's sort of beginning the party for NBA fans in a plaza outside of the building. And it really creates sort of an atmosphere from the minute you approach the building to the game itself to walking out of the building. So that that's one of the factors for American Airlines Center. Let's go down to Banker's Life Fieldhouse. I'm a former Pacers broadcaster, and I broadcast in the old Market Square. Can you talk about that arena? Yeah, it's one of my personal favorites. And I, I think if I was doing this list solely on my own and, and not as sort of a team effort, this might even rank higher. I, I love going to Banker's Life Fieldhouse. To me, that atrium that you walk into immediately sort of sets the tone. Uh, like you said, it does have kind of that Hoosiers, uh, Henkel Fieldhouse feel. Mm -hmm. But I, I found myself the last time I was there spending a lot of time uh, looking over the historical displays. Yeah. You know, Indiana is obviously such a rich basketball state. Uh, so they've got a lot to draw from. Paul, Madison Square Garden, despite its age, gets a very good score. It's not on top, but it is very representative. Take us in today's Madison Square Garden and why this building through time continues to hold its rating. Yeah, they spent, I think, three off seasons in a row doing those renovations that include that sort of skybox area that you talked about. And so it just has that magical feel. And obviously, the Knicks have not been very good lately, and, and that um, affects the experience somewhat. Yet, fans continue to turn out at games. There is sort of that New York edge to the fans that, you know, some people may not enjoy. I, I personally do like it because it, it feels different than than other arenas. And again, you just can't help but you feel that history when you're in the building. You, you feel... Uh, you know, Willis Reed limping onto the court. It feels special when you're at a game at Madison Square Garden, no doubt about it. The newest building in the league is the beautiful Golden One Center, home of the Sacramento Kings. Tell us about this arena and how it is being received. Well, I, I think they knew that technologically it had to be a great arena, and they certainly achieved that. And I would expect other arenas in the future to try to copy that model as much as possible. You know, they came in at number 11 on our, our rankings this year. I have a feeling that will continue to go up as more people get a chance to experience that venue. Well, Paul, it is wonderful to visit. This is a great conversation starter, and we recommend that everybody check it out at stadiumjourney.com. Paul, we thank you for the visit. A lot of fun. Come on back again. Will do. Thanks, Bill. Paul Swanee, our guest. Now, stay tuned. We will be coming back and talking shop. That is next. Mark Madoran standing by on SB Nation Radio. Once again, it is time to talk shop. This is where we check out the weekly stadium headlines. And for that, we welcome in 
Mark Madoran, president and creator of Stadiums USA. Mark, we have an interesting story, and a lot of this, the implications of this, have not unfolded. But apparently, because of rains in Southern California, there is going to be a significant delay in the construction of Kroenke World in terms of bringing that big dome stadium online. What about some thoughts on this? The addition of another year in order to construct the massive stadium is really going to put a change in the way the Chargers look at the world Mm -hmm. because they're stuck at the small StubHub Center and they'll have to stay there an additional year. Mm. And I don't think they're going to appreciate having to spend one more year at this really very insignificant stadium that's really not built to NFL standards. And I think the league was probably happy to have a two-year temporary lease there, but a third year is going to change everybody's outlook, and I don't think that's appreciated. Bill, remember when they're building Cronky World, because of the problems with the uh, international airport, LAX, right down the road, they had to build that stadium into the ground. Yeah. An actual ground level, the stadium playing floor, is some big number underneath the surface of the ground, something like mm-hmm. 80 to 100 feet. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that heavy rains uh, changed their uh, plans. That put them, I'm sure, way behind schedule, and um, they probably had to pump out the hole every morning in order to get mm-hmm. started. So I'm sure that's been a big factor in trying to put all this together. Mark, here's one that grabbed the headlines this week. This is a head-scratcher right here. Do you realize that Baltimore's Camden Yards and MT Bank Stadium, the home of the Ravens, almost went into foreclosure? They were almost sold off. Uh, It's an amazing story here. How in the world could something like this happen? Well, a classic computer screw-up in Baltimore. They put their two major stadiums, Uh, on the list of properties that were going to tax sale. Camden Yards, home of the Orioles, and M&T Bank Stadium, home of the NFL Ravens, were both listed and subject to possible foreclosure because of the debt owed to the city. And uh, the number they supposedly owed was greater than $750. I'll bet their electric bill uh, every month and their water bill every month is much higher than that. (laughs) The problem exists between the city of Baltimore and the Maryland Stadium Authority. The Stadium Authority says it did not receive a recent bill for water and sewer use. Additionally, the authority is disputing some earlier bills that had some mistakes. The whole mess was a giant mistake, compounded on top of another mistake, and ended up the properties uh, ended up listed there. And someone actually bid to take over those two properties. And of course, they're going to have to get their money back. Mm-hmm. But it seems like the city of Baltimore is going to have some issues to iron out in their front office on how they do business. Yeah, I'd say so. I could smell a lawsuit coming out of that, too. Uh, that could be really interesting. Mark, a few major league teams have been experimenting with a new idea called a ballpark pass. But the Oakland A's are among the teams that have been trying it out. Now they say they're going to cut off sales of these passes. What are they and why are the A's cutting it off? Well, the teams that are suffering from weak attendance are looking at methods to try and get people into the ballpark uh, as best they can. The Oakland A's among them have launched a new plan called the A's Ballpark Pass. It allows a fan to attend every home game 
during one month. So you and I want to go to June. We can go to every home ball game the A's play in June. And the plan costs only $19.99. You couldn't go to the ballpark any cheaper than that. Basically gives you the right to get into the ballpark for those home games. Mm -hmm. It's a standing room only pass pretty much. But the fans can turn this into a seat by using the MLB ballpark app. Mm-hmm. And it's only good if the, the stadium isn't sold out. Well, obviously in Oakland, I don't think it's ever sold out. And they're, they're going to experiment with this in other ballparks as well. It appears that the A's are trying to limit the passes at this point to 2,000 fans. Mm-hmm. But there have been conflicting reports as to the total in the future. They may up that to 4,000 or 6,000 mm-hmm. after they've run it for a few months to see how successful it is. They think that in the future, an awful lot of fans will go for something like this. And what they'll do is go on the MLB app and then they'll upgrade that pass from a standing room only to get much better seats. In Oakland, holders of that pass will usually get a third deck seat with access to the third deck concessions only. They won't be allowed to go to the other parts of the park. Mm -hmm. The pass is the A's experiment to try and supplement their really poor attendance. And down the road, the A's may be looking at much bigger numbers, but we know that they've cut it off at 2,000, at least for the month of June. Mark, we mentioned earlier the problems with Kroenke World and the potential delays there. Now it sounds like the Raiders may have some delays going to Las Vegas. Not the same situation. What are we looking at here? Well, Mark Davis World is uh, on the books in Las (laughs) Vegas, and the Raiders are trying to get their business part of the proposal together. The Raiders have completed their lease agreement negotiations with Las Vegas, and they will be submitting the lease for approval to the owners at the meeting next week that's here in Chicago. It was important to have the lease completed because if it wasn't ready to be voted on at this meeting, it would delay the process of approval back to the owners meeting, which doesn't happen again till October. If they started that much six months later, Um, Five months later, it's going to just delay construction one more year. Mm. And here's the deal with the Raiders. They're in Oakland for two more years on their current lease. Mm -hmm. But after those two years, they've got to move. If they have to go to a third year, it's going to be a temporary facility. And Mm. if they delayed the construction anymore, it would have meant two temporary years at that location. And I'm sure the Raiders wanted to avoid that. All right, Mark, let's get ready and roll back the clock as we get ready to take a look at important dates in stadium and ballpark history. And uh, there used to be a ballpark where the field was warm and green. Well, Bill, this week in 1920, and you remember this one, police... Raid the bleachers at Wrigley Field and rest 24 fans for gambling. Yeah, I had to bail you out on that. I remember it well. (laughs) You did. And I can tell you in 97 years since this, nothing's changed in the bleachers at Wrigley Field. In this week in 1972, the Phillies' Greg Luzinski hit one of the longest home runs in the history of Philadelphia's veteran stadium. It measured at more than 500 feet to straightaway center, where it ricocheted off the famous Liberty Bell. Remember they had the Liberty Bell mounted there in center field. Yeah. 
Stadium's USA Trivia for this week, and this is a tough one. We're going to talk about long home runs. You remember former Major Leaguer and Hall of Famer Ernie Lombardi. He was a rather large man and a catcher, and he hit some uh, monumental shots. He hit a home run that's called the 30-mile home run. The ball landed in the back of a truck traveling on the highway outside the stadium, and it carried the ball over 30 miles before the driver noticed the ball sitting in the back of the truck. Can you name the ballpark where Lombardi hit his 30-mile home run? Was it Scheib Park in Philadelphia? Mm-hmm. Was it Crosley Field in Cincinnati? Was it Ebbets Field in Brooklyn? Or was it Wrigley Field in Chicago? My thinking is, Mark, that it was Crosley Field in Cincinnati. I have a 50% chance on that. But I also remember that there were streets on the left and particularly on the right field side, which very likely might have carried a fair amount of truck traffic. I'm going with Crosley Field. And you are correct. Oh, yes. Yes. It was Crosley Field in Cincinnati. (laughs) He played the bulk of his career there for the Cincinnati Reds, so it was a good guess. Mark, we'll see you next week. Have a good week, Bill. You too, Mark. Mark Madoran, We Talk Shop. Now, coming up, we take a seat in the bleachers at Old Comiskey Park and visit with iconic ballpark organist Nancy Faust. And boy, does she have some wonderful baseball stories. I love Nancy Faust. Oh, so do I. And you will meet her next on SB Nation Radio. I remember one of my first experiences returning to my native Chicago was to get out to the ballpark. And when I went out to what was then Comiskey Park, I heard this fantastic organist for the first time. gone on to a fantastic career being able to take this instrument and make it a part of the sport of baseball or other sports for that matter is a very very special thing we're going to visit with nancy faust who did it so beautifully not only with the white Sox, of course but i knew her from some other sports too nancy it's great to visit with you again well, Bill, that's such a great introduction. I don't know if that that's a pretty hard act to follow, I guess. But yes, the um, ball games did provide me with a wonderful life. All sports did. And what was so special was that I had such access to the fans that also made up such a wonderful life for me. And you are giving your age away when you talk about coming to the ball games years and years and years ago. <laughs> yeah. But I certainly remember you well, and it's great to hear you. You sound just the same, and I'm so happy that you're able to continue a great profession for yourself. You know, when you started with the White Sox, a wonderful guy by the name of Stu Holcomb hired you. And I would imagine that circumstances relative to what an organist did, how they did it, have changed quite a bit through the years. You really are kind of caught up in an era in which technology started to have a very strong impact on not only what was presented, but the instruments used to present it. New types of keyboards, new types of electronic instruments. You played all of that stuff. 
Well, actually, Bill, when I was hired by Stu, organist played, oh, I don't know, probably in between innings, and maybe they played the national anthem and a few rally things like charge. But it was Stu's idea when he uh, first approached me to play a little ditty or something that could reflect the player himself. And so he gave me a roster, and he said, this is the player's name, and here is this town or the state that he's from. Could you play a state song? Well, that was easy for me to do, and that's what I did. And I, th- I guess I just kind of expanded from there. But first of all, let me say that when I first started, there was an organ out in Centerfield Bleachers that had been placed out there with the fans by Bill Vec, by the late Bill Vec, mm-hmm. when he owned the team um, the first time. He hired the very first organist in 1960. And that's he was very um, unconventional in that rather than put the organist in a booth hidden away, put him out there with the fans. Well, when I was hired 10 years later in 1970, I was able to take advantage of that great location and build a great rapport with fans, and I just so enjoyed that. So, But all I did was play at the organ. I didn't know much about baseball, but I listened to a little radio, and I'd hear the broadcasts and try to gather information. And and I guess I became more bold as time went on. And rather than just play a state song, I would play a little something else that could reflect the player himself. Like his number, for example. If his number was three, I'd play the theme from my three songs way back in the 70s. And, <laughs> uh, things like that. If his name was Bill, or Won't You Marry Me Bill, or Won't You Come Home Bill Bailey. Things like that. Have we lost something with uh, the organist role changing so much. Some parts, of course, still have a prominent place for the organist, but there is a trend that has moved toward pre-produced music, pre-produced bits, which are pulled directly from original music. But as good as those may be, they lack the spontaneity that you're talking about. Have we lost something there? Well, I I don't think it's easy to find an organist that has that spontaneity because so many musicians rely on music. There aren't that many people that could even do that. And I think it's just been an evolution now. Young people are used to hearing recorded music and hearing songs that they hear on the radio, and they've grown to love that. It's just been a a transition that uh, will never come back. There's no interest in people learning the organ anymore, Um, although the sound is somewhat still the sound of the organ is somewhat synonymous with a ball game. So you might have a token organist that they're in play charge, or you might even just have a sound bite. Did you along the way get to meet some other organists? You know, around the country, there are several people who are quite good at this. It's a very unusual skill, but there are a few. You will find them. Did you ever build up any kind of network with anybody else who shared the same responsibility that you've had? Yes, I've met a few. I've met um, well, Josh Cantor, who plays uh, from Boston, and he's great, and he's it's a passion of his, and um, he never stops learning, and I think that makes a big difference. It's his avocation and vocation. And I know there's Dieter Rule out there on the West Coast, certainly Gary Pressy, who's playing for the Cubs. I hope they can just hang in there and um, that the management continues to appreciate what it is that they can contribute to the game. Nancy, I'm going to ask you about uh, one or two of your favorites. Are there any that in your own mind, perhaps aside from what we as listeners may think that you were particularly proud of, some little uh, tidbits that you came up with that uh, you were particularly proud that you were able to put those on? Oh, it's just so funny to ask, Bill, because it seems like I'm so spontaneous and I kind of forget right after I do it. 
But um, I guess I always think in terms of uh, names that lend themselves to fun songs, and one would be that Pete in Caviglia to play in the Gata de Vida for Caviglia, <laughs> for Ducey, playing I Love the scene from I Love Lucy for Ducey. Um, you know, I guess you'd have to give me a name, and I would just tell you what I might play. Uh, just, oh gosh. And then I liked it when there was a fish name like Salmon. I think there was a ball player named Salmon because, you know, he'd get Jaws or Under the Sea or mm. Charlie the Tuna song. So I just, I love the names that lend themselves to songs that I can play that the fans would recognize. That's Nancy Faust, our guest. And believe me, if you have heard her, you will never forget her. Stay tuned now. We have a full day of sports coverage ahead right here on SB Nation Radio.